Our second reading is from the first letter of John, chapter 3. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is the word of the Lord. If you were asked to summarize the Christian faith into one sentence or a simple phrase, what would you say? Jesus, of course, was asked essentially that question, and his answer, which many of us have heard, is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. All of everything that you've ever heard hinges on that. Love God and love your neighbor. In 1 John, which we've been looking at the past two weeks, and we'll look again today, John does essentially the same thing. He summarizes numerous times the Christian faith in this phrase, you shall believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and you shall love one another. Love God and love one another. This morning, we're looking specifically at the second part of that essential Christian summary. How do we love one another? What does it look like? And is it really that important? We get at the beginning of our reading today, John giving us the description of what we are called to. He says this in 1 John 3.11, for this is the message you have heard from the beginning. Basically, this is everything you need to know, that we should love one another. Now, it's interesting that he uses a different phrase than Jesus does. He doesn't say love your neighbors. He says love one another. Now, why he's specifically hitting on that is is a part of what's going on in the church in that day and age. But what's interesting about it is the way that it calls to mind this idea of family. Because throughout John, he talks about loving the brothers or brothers and sisters. It was the way of talking about one another. He calls us children of God and that we should love the fellow children of God. In John, he's saying, love each other. You guys, looking around, love one another. Specifically, he's talking about there should be a unique and dynamic love within the church community. And if you're going to boil down all ethical lists, all morality, all virtues, and you know, John doesn't actually give us any of these lists. A lot of the New Testament has lists of what you should do and not do and how to relate to one another. But John simply says, look, you guys know what to do. Love one another. Unfortunately, lists are much easier. If if he had simply said, here's the 10 things you need to do, we could have a checklist to, to mark off. 
You know, I want you to give 10 hours of volunteer work each week. Okay, I can do that if I'm going to be really good. But when he says love one another, it's a lot harder. Because it's not just our actions, but it's getting at our motives and the desires of our heart. It's talking about relationships with other people, and relationships are always messy and difficult. And it's talking about our grasp and understanding of the gospel, of what God has done for us, and how that should affect all of our relationships. The first thing we see in John is that this is very important to him. For some reason, this is something he wants to make sure that we understand is absolutely necessary. And one of the ways that John does that is he repeats himself. You see, it's a rhetorical tool back in that day and age to use repetition. And when you repeated something, it wasn't just bad writing. It was actually a way of amplifying or underscoring your point. So seven or eight times, John says, love one another, love the brothers. It's his way of shouting. It's as if when you read it, you should be hearing him say, love one another. Got it? Okay, John. You don't have to say it 10 times. And he says, no, I do. This is absolutely necessary. He basically says you can't call yourself a Christian without loving one another. And he underscores it even more by pointing out the opposite possibility. Not that you hate one another actively, but rather lack of love for one another is the same as hate. And he says this by using the example of Cain, which if you're going to use an example, it's about the worst one you could possibly use. We read in verse 12, John warns us, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. See, if, you, if you're not sure of that Cain and Abel story, it goes like this. It's right after Adam and Eve have been expelled from the garden. They have children. The children grow up. Abel brings his, his offering to the Lord, and it's an act of worship. He brings the first fruits, the best of what he has to the Lord. Cain brings some of what he has. And it's not an act of love and of worship to God. It's marking off the checklist. Abel's offering is accepted. Cain's is not, and Cain is jealous and angry, and he murders his brother. And what John is trying to get across here is when we don't actively love one another, we are no better than a murderer like Cain. In order to underscore the seriousness of it, he starts talking about the fact that if we don't love one another, that we are abiding in death. We are the damned, if you would. We read in verse 14 and 15, whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother by not loving is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Failing to love is to be a hater, a murderer, abiding in death, being condemned eternally. This kind of sounds like an exaggeration. And in many ways it is. John is exaggerating on purpose, though. You see, John, in his letter writing, is full of black and white. It's polarization. It's either or. It's never both and for John. 
And when it comes to loving God and loving one another, he's right to underscore it in this way. Either you are actively loving one another or you're essentially a murderer. Now, how can he say that? Well, what he tells us later is that our love for one another reveals the authenticity of our faith. Our active love for one another reveals both that we believe and what we believe or who we believe in. John is saying this, you cannot say you love God without loving your neighbor, without loving one another. Our love for one another reveals that we actually do love God and have faith in him. So, it's pretty serious, right? We should love one another. We're called to love one another. So how do we do it? What can we learn from John and specifically from this passage about what it might look like to love one another? Well, there's three things that I see in the passage that I want to kind of bring out today. Our love for one another should be practical, relational, and gospel-driven. We need practical love, relational love, and gospel love. The first is that our love should be practical. This is actually the easiest thing, the thing that jumps out quickest in our passage. In verses 17 and 18 of our passage, we read this. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Much of the Old Testament law was built around this idea of mercy and justice for the poor. And much of the prophets who were writing to condemn Israel were condemning them because they were focusing on religious duty, offering sacrifices, fasting, all the things that made them feel holy, tithing, and they were forgetting to show mercy and justice to the poor, to the orphan, to the widow, to the foreigner. James, in a very similar passage, says that if our love is not actively meeting the needs of those around us, it's not really love. If a brother or sister, James writes, is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? <laughs> you can see that, that idea of, oh, you look hungry, I'll pray for you. Or, I feel really bad, they're having a really hard time. <sighs> I gotta remember them later on. What good is it if you're not actually meeting their needs? Peter Kuzmich, an Eastern European missions professor and missionary, told me once, you cannot give somebody the bread of life without giving them bread for life. You cannot give somebody God the bread of life without giving them bread to eat. Everyone is spiritually hungry, but if they're physically hungry, they will not have spiritual ears to hear. Give them food so that you can give them the real food they need afterwards. It's what Jesus talked about in the sheep and the goats. I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you visited me. And it's what Jesus highlights in the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? You know that parable. 
The Samaritan's walking along the road, and there on the side of the road is a man who is bloody and naked, clearly robbed. And the good Samaritan shows very real practical love for this man. This guy is his enemy, his racial and ethnic enemy. The Samaritan stops for a Jew. And when he stops for him, it's very practical. This is incredibly dangerous to stop because the robbers might be around. Then it gets incredibly dirty. He's dealing with blood and dirt and nakedness. And then it's real care as he bandages the man's wounds, lifting him up on his own donkey. And then it's incredibly time-consuming as the Samaritan goes out of his way to meet and care for the needs of this man that he didn't know. And ultimately, it's incredibly costly as he tells the innkeeper, whatever this man needs to get well, I'll come back and pay for. You see, practical love looks just like that. It's dangerous and dirty and involves real care and is often time-consuming and even sometimes costly. But that's some of what John is talking about when he says we should love one another. It should be very practical love, and in that sense, it should be proximate love. Who is in front of you this day? Who do you see this day? Who is on your mind this day? Look for and see the needs around you and then meet those needs. But on a regular basis, in order to know the needs of the people around us, we actually need to know the people around us. So in order to love one another, we don't just need practical love, we need relational love. Love requires relationships. Think about it. I might give or pitch in or help somebody or do good deeds, but the question is, have I opened my life up to them? Without relationship, when I'm doing good, I'm simply doing social work. And look, social work is fine. It might actually be helping somebody who is hungry or who is lonely or who needs a ride. But when I give to you without relationship, there's fundamentally written into that this idea that I have and you need. It's a superior to an inferior relationship. It's in a sense condescending. It's just charity. Or I'm being generous in order to feel good about myself. I'm being kind in order to justify myself. It creates a sense of self-righteousness in me. I'm a pretty generous guy. But when relationship is involved, those things get wiped away. I'm giving to you because I know you, and I'm committed to you, and I need you too. In 1 John, the family is a primary metaphor that you see throughout. It's a metaphor for all of our relationships within the community. In verse 14, 16, and 17, John uses brothers, the language of brothers, Love the brothers. Lay down your life for the brothers. See the needs of your brothers. We talked about it last week that we are children of God, fellow children of God in the family of God. So we need to kind of think through this idea that we should be developing relationships almost like siblings with one another. 
I don't know how many of you have had siblings growing up, but there's a unique relationship with it, with that person, with your brothers or your sisters. These are the first people you played with. It's the people you rode bikes with on the street or ran around the house with the neighbors playing hide and seek. It's with your brother or your sister, your brothers and sisters, that you share family traditions like who does what on Christmas morning or when you're on a family car trip, who sits where. For some reason, my older sister got the entire back seat and I was lying down in the wheel well, but that was our family tradition. I never argued with her about it. She would lie down across the whole back and I would lie down in the wheel area. But that's how we did car trips, right? And then as you grow up as siblings, you just become friends. You enjoy each other differently. You grow in trust with one another because you're siblings. You know each other. You don't need to be embarrassed in front of each other. Love one another means develop relationships as siblings with one another. But of course, in the ancient world in which John is writing, that brother language, that sibling language, that family language was much weightier. We've talked about this before, but in that culture, you live together. If you were brothers that were grown up, you might live in the same house. You definitely lived on the same property. You worked together. You prospered together. And you survived together. When one of you was in need, the other one was there. It was a relationship that was necessary for survival. And on top of that, your entire identity was in the corporate structure of the family. Nobody in that ancient world made individual decisions or had individual actions. They always thought about us, you and me, the togetherness, the role that my decisions make on, play on you. That, that idea of interdependence is what John is talking about when he says we ought to love one another. The problem is we as natural human beings and especially as Americans don't do well with interdependence. We do much better with independence. No, 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 I've got this. No, no, I'm okay, I don't need any help. No, I'm good, thanks. Think about the difference between our natural American individualism and the opening ceremonies of the 2008 games in China. I don't know how many of you saw that opening ceremony at the Olympics in China in 2008. There were 14,000 people on the floor of that stadium working together. It was amazing, especially for those of us who are Western American individualists. They were working together in a way that is simply impossible for us to imagine. In fact, if we did the same thing in America, there would have been at least a thousand moms and dads saying, how come little Susie doesn't have her own microphone? You know, my kid's really talented. He should probably have his own little pedestal stage. But there they worked together. Something about an Eastern mindset was able to kind of buy into that in a way that we would have a much harder time in the West doing. Nearly a decade ago, Robert Putnam wrote the book Bowling Alone, which the title in and of itself is fa fascinating. Robert Putnam is drawing on evidence from nearly a half million 
interviews over a quarter century. And what he says is this. He's in, in all of his kind of pulling all this information together. He says, today, Americans belong to fewer organizations that meet. We know our neighbors less. We meet with friends less frequently and even socialize with our families less often. The fabric of our connections with each other have plummeted. We're more and more disconnected from one another relationally, even as we're more connected electronically. There are more people bowling in America in the year 2000 than ever before, but most of them are bowling alone. They don't join leagues or teams that would have them connected to one another. So when John says, love one another, love the brothers, develop relationships where you see each other as siblings, it's very hard. And we bring the same American independence into our personal faith. We think about our faith as my faith, my belief in God, my walk with God. And you combine that with just our natural sinful selfishness, and it's hard to develop relationships with anybody that would look like brothers and sisters. And so it's hard to have love for one another as brothers and sisters. You see, relationship, relationship requires openness, a desire to know and a willingness to be known. Relationships require commitment, stepping beyond just, hey, let's stick together while this works. It's why the covenant of marriage is so weighty because it says we're in this together for good. But interpersonal relationships, even outside of marriage, need that sort of commitment that says I'm willing to be here for you over the course of time. And relationships need dependence, a willingness on all of our parts to be dependent on one another, not just independent, proving our greatness through our lack of need for anyone else. When uh, we lived in Richmond, there was a few guys that I knew that were a couple years younger than me at UVA who had moved there, and they were talking all high and mighty about this idea of living together and being in community. And I, I knew it was just a pipe dream, but, but they did it. There was this group of guys, and some of them got married, and they ended up living in the same two-block neighborhood in inner-city Richmond because they wanted to be committed to one another, to loving one another, and to loving their neighbors, to making an impact on each other's lives and on the lives of the people around them. And what was interesting, as one of these guys named Danny Avula was talking in this video that, that we have, that he was talking at a TED conference about this, this commitment they made to each other, but then in the process of living in community together, they also got to know their neighbors. And at first, they were just trying to love their neighbors in a charity sort of way. But over the course of time, Danny said, he realized he was dependent on his neighbors. And when he got to that point of being willing to allow people into his life and to count on them and to open himself up to them, he began to see what it was like to actually be a neighbor, to love others, to enjoy relationship at its deepest level. Let's look at this video from, that Danny Avula gave uh, a friend of mine at a TED conference not too long ago. On a few occasions when I'd just been so harried by life and work and having too many babies and let my lawn get out of control, 
my neighbors have mowed it without even asking. When my wife pulls up from the grocery store with our four little kids in tow, they jump quickly to lend a hand. That good neighboring felt really uncomfortable to me. You know, I'd grown up in this middle-class suburbia, and we didn't do that in the suburbs. Um, you know, it was uncomfortable because my culture was one of independence. Relying on other people was a, was a sign of weakness. And it was uncomfortable also because every time that my neighbors did something for me, it highlighted my inability to manage my own life. But what happened, what happened from there was that we moved from, you know, this feeling of uncomfort to the realization that every time I let myself be helped, I was pushing past just surface level relationships with my neighbors. And that was powerful. And so over time, we learned to let ourselves be helped. And in that, we found authentic, mutual, and beautiful relationships with our neighbors. He's talking about a willingness to be interdependent, to love others and let them love us. To be brothers and sisters, to love one another, involves relationships. But relational connectedness to the point of being brothers and sisters is hard. Look at this graphic here. If we talk about just being here on a Sunday morning, if we talk about just being here on a Sunday morning, and all you do is show up on a Sunday morning every so often, you get to know people a little bit, but really what ends up happening is, like the spots in the big block there on the left, the people around you are simply acquaintances or strangers that you sort of recognize their face. It's like going to a Redskin game and saying you're part of the team because you're in the stadium. Ultimately, we are called to the sort of relationships that are taking the steps further. In a room like this on a given Sunday might be your best friend that you've not yet met. But in order to do that, you actually have to take a step more than just showing up on a Sunday morning. So a simple way to do it is like staying afterwards when we have coffee so that you can get to know people a little bit more. But it's one of the reasons why we push small groups at our church. Small groups run in the fall and in the spring, and it's an opportunity for you to meet together with six, eight, ten other people over the course of 10, 12 weeks and get to know them on a deeper level. And over the course of, say, three years, you might get to know 40 or 50 people. And they, those 40 or 50 people will move from being strangers to acquaintances to kind of like having neighbors on your street. You'll come in on a Sunday morning and know something about 30 or 40 other people in the room, which helps to weave the fabric of all of our relationships together better. But ultimately, what we're calling people to is the need to have even deeper relationships than even our small groups can provide. You need to find people that you're willing to commit to, to love and be loved. And that's outside of the parameters of the organization of this church. It's hard to do. It takes time. It's not easy. But our hope is that you will find brothers and sisters in any church that you're a part of, whether it's this one or some other one. You will find brothers and sisters in the community of faith that can be the sort of people you eat with regularly, you play with, you talk to, you work beside. The kind of person that in the middle of the night you can call because you need something desperately. The kind of people that when something good happens, you want to celebrate it with them. 
Or when something bad happens, you need them beside you. We need more than just acquaintances. We need more than just to be fans in the stadium. We need brothers and sisters that we can love and that can love us. Relational love is developing these sorts of friendships and connections to love one another like family, open, committed, dependent, sacrificial. So love is practical in 1 John. Love is also relational in 1 John. And lastly, love is gospel-driven. You see, it's the example of the cross that John points to again and again. In 1 John 3.16, we read, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. In the next chapter, he gives an almost parallel phrasing in chapter 4. He says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, to die for our sins on our behalf. If this is how God loved us, we also ought to love one another. So our love for one another should look like the gospel. The gospel is this. God extends grace to us who don't deserve it. God humbles himself to become one of us. God bears our sins on himself on the cross. God in Jesus Christ reveals that he wants relationship with us. Our love for one another should not just be giving a few dollars to somebody in need. It should be extending grace to one another, bearing each other's burdens, forgiving each other's sins, pointing each other to Christ. It should be gospel-looking love, love that portrays what God has done in Jesus Christ. But our love should not just be gospel love. We actually need the gospel in order to love. Think about it. There are actually limits to my love for other people. And my limits for love for other people can be based on the fact that I don't have a relationship with them, and then I'm sort of indifferent to their their challenges. Or because I see them and view them as a competitor, in which case I'm likely to be jealous or insecure around them. This is some of what happens with Cain and Abel. John writes that the reason Cain murdered Abel is that Abel was righteous and Cain was evil. You see, Abel, his brother, was right with God. Cain did not feel right with God. He was insecure in his standing before God. His relationship with God was on the basis of fulfilling a checklist, and he saw his brother as somebody who was fulfilling the checklist better. Whenever our understanding of God is not based on the gospel, but based on moral checklists and religious goodness, we will see others as a threat to our very existence. And this is true with anything that we worship besides a God of grace. Whatever we worship besides God will put limits on our love for other people. Whatever becomes central to your heart is also the weak spot in your love for other people. Where do you find your meaning, your identity, your hope, your heart? In kids, career, success, being liked? If that's the case, then anyone we perceive to be more successful or more beautiful or more liked is a threat to our identity and our joy.
they become our Abel, the brother that we want to see diminished. We'd like to see them fail, and we ultimately can't love them. Only when we allow the gospel to penetrate our hearts, what God has done for us by grace, can we be released from that Cain-like bondage to jealousy and insecurity and selfishness. Only if I am right with God, only if I am sure that God loves me, can I love without limits. Only if I'm transformed by the gospel, only if I know God fully, can I love as God loves. We need the gospel in order to love one another. And if we need any final motivation, I love what John says in verse 12 of chapter 4, that as we love one another and are loved, we actually get to experience God. He says this, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Do you get what he's saying? People say, I want to experience God, and he's saying, you want to see God? You want to taste God? You want to experience God? Love and be loved as brothers and sisters in Christ. If we love one another as brothers, relationally, practically, gospel-driven love, it is an incredible draw to people not only in this room but outside of this room who are longing for community, who want to experience God. In loving one another, that's exactly what we get to have. We get to see and experience God. We get to taste heaven. Of course, the opposite is also true. If we don't love, we get to experience hell. I want to experience heaven and know the love of God for me through you. Let's pray. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to die for our sins. Let that penetrate our hearts, Lord, so that we might love one another and experience your love for us again and again. Amen.
must direct me by thy spirit.